Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 240, Dr. Bo Branson on the Monarchy of the Father, Part 2. In this portion of Dr. Branson's presentation, he discusses how different views of the Trinity relate to the relationship between Orthodox and Roman Catholic Christian traditions. He talks a little bit about the Filioque and the Great Schism, the bishop named Photius, and dueling Eighth Ecumenical Councils. He also discusses the worry about subordinationism and gets into a couple of passages from Gregory of Nyssa. Here again, then, Dr. Branson. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about how the monarchy plays out in ecumenical discussion. So you can imagine that if this is kind of the standard Eastern Orthodox view, then that's going to be a problem between Orthodox and Roman Catholics, right? So when when Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox get together and try to have these ecumenical kind of discussions about, you know, would there be any possibility for us to come back into communion? Obviously, that's going to be one of the big issues. So here's a few quotes from this document from the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. Um, They produced kind of this joint document uh, between the Orthodox and Catholic churches. It's not anything binding, but it just was something to kind of indicate, you know, some degree of common understanding. So one of the things it says in this document is the Greek fathers and the whole Christian Orient speak of the father's monarchy. Notice what they do, okay? Even though, really, Roman Catholics are egalitarians, right? But they don't deny the monarchy of the father. Why? Because they can't. Because it's clearly there in the church fathers, and they know that it's there. So Roman Catholics, when they had these dialogues with Eastern Orthodox, they can't deny the monarchy of the Father because anyone who actually works in the patristic sources knows about this. It's, it's glaringly you know, apparent, and there's no way to, to get around it. So what they will typically try to do is the Catholics are going to just try to sort of interpret the monarchy in a weaker sense, right? So they won't interpret it as meaning that the Father is the one true God. They'll try to just... Uh, take one of those weaker interpretations of the monarchy. And that's what they do here. So they say, um, the Greek fathers in the whole Christian Orient speak of the father's monarchy. That's true. Uh, And the Western tradition following St. Augustine also confesses that the Holy Spirit takes his origin from the father uh, principaliter, that is, as principle. And they give the quote from De Trinitate. In this sense, therefore, The two traditions recognize that the monarchy of the Father implies that the Father is the sole Trinitarian cause, idea, or principle, principium, of the Son and the the Holy Spirit. Again, they interpret it as the traditions recognize that the monarchy of the Father implies that the Father is the source. But they don't say that the two traditions recognize that the monarchy of the Father implies that the Father is... God, and the the word God refers to the Father rather than to the Trinity itself, because, see, Augustine says that God, the word God, refers to the Trinity itself, and we reject that. So what they do is they they don't, they just kind of don't address the real issue, they just try to sort of find the common ground here. They say the term ekporipsis, that's procession in Greek, as distinct from the term proceed, proenai, can only characterize a relationship of origin to the principle without principle of the Trinity, namely the Father. Okay, so that's good. We like that. That is why the Orthodox Orient has always refused the formula to ectu patros ke tu uyu ek porevomena. And the Catholic Church has refused the addition ke tu uyu and the Son to the formula ecto patros ek porevomena. Uh, in the Greek text of the Nicene Constantinopolitan symbol, even though it's li- li- even in its liturgical use by Latin. So what that means, it's a it's kind of a long-winded way of, of saying that the Catholic Church, they're saying, okay, the Eastern Orthodox won't say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. We're going to talk about this later uh, in, a, in a minute when we talk about the Great Schism. 
And the Catholic Church is basically saying they agree when they're speaking in Greek. So it's kind of a weird position that they take. We'll, we'll talk more about the filioque later, uh, the, whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but they kind of have this thing where they added this thing into the creed in Latin really because they were egalitarians at the time uh, and really still are. And now they're trying to do this thing where they say, okay, well, we'll sort of admit that it's a heresy when you say it in Greek, but it's not heretical if you say it in Latin. And it's, uh, anyway, I don't really think it makes a whole lot of sense. The idea is that the Latin word that they translate as proceed kind of has different connotations from the Greek. Um, But of course, from my point of view as an Orthodox Christian, I would say, well, then that means you've got a bad translation of the creed, buddy. You should get a better translation of the creed rather than using an admittedly, confessedly bad translation of the creed and then adding stuff that doesn't make any sense and trying to force other people to and then excommunicating them, whatever. Anyway, it just does, doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's that's you can see what they're doing. They're trying to kind of dance around the issue. They can't deny the monarchy of the Father because it's there even in their own church fathers, right? So even in, in Augustine, it's there. What they try to do is just kind of interpret things in, in different ways. And here's what they say specifically about the filioque. We'll talk more about the filioque in a second. It's just this Latin word that means and the son. And it has to do with the fact that the Roman Catholic Church changed the creed from saying that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father to saying it proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So they say in this document, the doctrine of the filioque must be understood and presented by the Catholic Church in such a way that it cannot appear to contradict the monarchy of the Father, nor the fact that he is the sole origin, uh, the archi of the ekporepsis of the Spirit. Its purpose was to stress the fact that the Holy Spirit is of the same divine nature as the Son, uh, without calling into question the one monarchy of the Father. I think that's pretty bogus. Um, uh, I mean, you know, it's nice that they are trying to be friendly and, and so forth. You know, of course, if you really just wanted to say that the Holy Spirit had the same divine nature as the Father and the Son, you could just use the word homoousius, because that's what it means. So we say that about the Son. The Son is one essence with the Father. You just wanted to really kind of nail that point home with the Holy Spirit, then just say the same thing about the Holy Spirit. It's just not true. Uh, It's just not the case that uh, the filioque was added to guarantee that the Holy Spirit had the same divine nature uh, as the Son. But anyway, they say, well, we have to kind of understand this in a way so that it doesn't look like it contradicts the monarchy of the Father. Again, the long story short, the point is that this is such standard and such uh, central Eastern Orthodox theology that when Roman Catholics, who in reality are egalitarian and not monarchical, at least traditionally they, they have been for centuries in a lot of their official documents and, and so forth, there's aspects of, of the monarchy in, in Aquinas and some things like this. So I guess it depends on the sources and so forth. But I do think they really, in their ecumenical councils, have kind of worked themselves. They sort of painted themselves into a corner. Anyway, what they do is, again, they can't deny the monarchy of the Father, but their theology is very difficult to reconcile their official stated theology with the strong monarchy view. So what they do is, instead of denying the monarchy view, they just try to interpret the monarchy in a weaker way, and that's what they do here. It should be surprising that Orthodox Christians say that the one God is the Father rather than the Trinity, Should it be surprising that this is kind of a tricky and difficult issue for Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox to work out? Well, it shouldn't be if you know really anything about the history of the Orthodox Church. If you know anything about it and you're from the West, the first thing you should probably know about it is the Great Schism. (laughs) You should know that once upon a time... There were, you know, not just the Pope of Rome, there were five different patriarchs, uh, they were all one big happy family. Maybe they weren't happy, but they were all one big family. And at one point in time, at a certain point in time, there was a division between uh, the Roman Catholic Church went kind of one way, and all the other churches in the world essentially uh, went a different way. The reason for that is largely this issue, the, the doctrine of the monarchy of the Father. I'll say this, a lot of people have 
heard about the Orthodox Church, they know about the Great Schism, uh, and they're not really maybe quite sure why it happened or what it was about. Some people have heard about the Great Schism, and they've heard about this doctrine, the Filioque, but they don't really quite know what that's about either. So a lot of people, if you ask them about the Filioque, they say, yeah, I know there's this phrase, and from the Son, that the, you know, the Roman Catholic Church added into the Creed, and that was kind of the issue. Some people think that the only issue the Orthodox Church really had with it was that it was, you know, illegally added into the creed, and you're, you're not, you know, it shouldn't make any changes to the creed. And that is a problem, but that's not the, the only problem. Some people also kind of know that, okay, yeah, there's also a theological problem with it, but they think that it has to do with this really abstract technical uh, metaphysics and stuff, and, it, you know, it just seems so abstruse, and how could people possibly argue about this? Well, partly it, it does involve some really abstruse kind of technical metaphysics and whatever, but largely, as we will see here, what it really was about, the, the filioque in some way wasn't really about the filioque, it was really about the monarchy of the Father. The mystical theology of the Eastern Church uh, is kind of a classic primer on orthodox theology, uh, and it's pretty old. It's not, I would say, it's almost, maybe I'd say it's out of date. I, you could, uh, it would be nice if someone had a better, fresher, kind of such type of book, but, you know, it goes back to, the, I think, the 50s or something was when it was written. But anyway, it's still kind of a classic work, and in it, Vladimir Lossky talks about the Filioque. He says, the Greek fathers always maintained that the principle of unity in the Trinity is the person of the Father, this is why the East has always opposed the formula of filioque, this, this idea that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son, which is what filioque means, which seems to impair the monarchy of the Father, right? Either one is forced to destroy the unity by acknowledging two principles, two sources of Godhead, Godhood, or you have to ground the unity primarily on the common nature, see? So that's the, the issue, that's the worry, is... If you just kind of take the filioque at face value, it looks like you no longer have a monarchy, right? You have a diarchy, and so you have ditheism. And we're going to see that's exactly what St. Photius accused the, the Westerners of, of doing. He says this looks like ditheism. So either you're going to get ditheism if you still think about the unity of God in terms of the monarchia. Well, you've got a diarchy now, so you've got ditheism. Or else you're going to have to shift the idea of the unity of God from the monarchia, who's the source, to the shared common essence, right? The common nature. And that turns out to be, you know, exactly what happened in the West. That's, that's the direction that Western theology went in. They want to think that the unity of God somehow has to do with the divine nature. So you'll see to this day people like Bill Hasker and, and others trying to say, well, you know, what makes the persons one God is that they share the one divine nature, you know, and, and that's on his view, it's a trope of divinity, um, which I think is, anyway, I'm not going to get into that. But that's the way Western theology really did go, is that they try to understand the unity of God in terms of the shared nature. So what you get, sometimes people call this the monarchy of the essence uh, in other words, you know, the, the one God turns out kind of to be the divine nature instead of the Father. And it does seem like the filioque pushes you in one direction or the other. Either you're just going to say, okay, there's two arche, there's two sources, uh, so there's two gods, or you're going to have to think about what the one God, the unity of God means in, in, this, in terms of the divine nature instead of in terms of an ontological source. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson tells us more about the great schism that divided the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches.
let's talk a little bit about the origins of the Great Schism and, and where this played out. Really, the Great Schism, although we people kind of conventionally date it to 1054 A.D., it really goes back like the first sort of rumblings of the Great Schism happened under a man named Photius. We in the Orthodox Church call him Saint Photius the Great. In the West, he's just called Photius, maybe Photius the Jerk or Photius that guy we don't like very much, whatever. But he was the Patriarch of Constantinople twice uh, because he got banished and exiled. So, but the first time he was Patriarch of Constantinople from 858 A.D. to 867. And in 867, he wrote this encyclical to the Eastern Patriarchs. Basically, he was concerned. He was concerned about Rome doing some things that were illegal um, with Bulgarian converts and things. Um, but basically, Rome was trying to kind of get jurisdiction over these recent converts from Bulgaria, even though by canon law they sh- should have been under the ju- jurisdiction of Constantinople. And so he was complaining about that, but he also was complaining about, he started hearing about this filioque business, and he said, hold on a minute, you know, that's not just uh, sort of bad ecclesiastical etiquette or, you know, politics, where that's that's heresy. And so he wrote this encyclical to the Eastern patriarchs, meaning everyone except the, the Bishop of Rome, and said, hey, you guys, we've got a problem on our hands because the Bishop of Rome has this heretical theology. And he called a council that condemned Rome for heresy precisely because of the filioque. Again, because Rome was saying in the creed that the Holy Spirit not only proceeds from the Father, but he proceeds from the Father and from the Son as well. Well, pretty soon afterwards, uh, he's deposed uh, and imprisoned by the emperor. So the emperor uh, of Constantinople, for, I, I'm not sure if it's exactly because of that, uh, maybe for, to some extent it was because of that, but largely this was about these kind of um, you know issues with the Byzantine emperors. Everyone's always trying to murder everybody else in the Byzantine, you know, with the emperor because you want to take over the throne if you can assassinate the other co-emperor or if you're the you know, the son of the emperor, if you can kill him off, then you're the emperor. And there was one of these things where someone was trying to murder somebody, and then they found out about it, murdered the other guy first. And Photius just said, I don't care if they were trying to kill you. You can't murder somebody. You can't just assassinate them. You can defend yourself, but, you know, murder is murder. And the emperor didn't want to hear that, so he deposed him uh, and imprisoned him. Meanwhile, since Photius had already called this council and condemned Rome for heresy, already. So within a couple years, the Pope convenes this council, what the Catholic Church today calls the Fourth Council of Constantinople, and they consider it the Eighth Ecumenical Council. In that council, they condemn Photius, and they issue a creed. And this is really interesting, because a lot of people criticize Photius for a lot of things. Um, They say, you know, his tone is not polite, you know, he's just kind of a, oh, he's cranky, you know, about these heresies, and he, you know, may have been the most intelligent and and highly educated man in the world at the time, but his arguments are kind of hard to follow, and they're, uh, you know, I don't really like his arguments, I'm not sure if they're good or not, they're hard to understand. His mystagogy of the Holy Spirit is kind of organized in a weird way, it's hard to follow. People have a lot of kind of criticisms of him, But one thing you can't criticize Photius for is being wrong, because he turned out to be as right as rain uh, about what was happening in the Roman Church and what was going to happen in the Roman Church and with their theology. Because he said, look, this filioque thing is going to push you in one of two directions. Either you're going to end up being polytheists or you're going to end up being this kind of quasi-modalist who say that the one God is the Trinity or it's the divine nature or something like that. And sure enough, immediately after he has this council and, and condemns them, and then he gets imprisoned and deposed and everything, the Pope comes along, they have this council, and what do they say? Their creed, they issue this creed at the council that says, we declare our belief in one God in three persons. And that's the first time you, you see that in a creed. Okay, no previous ecumenical council ever said anything like that. All the previous ecumenical councils and all the councils that Orthodox Christians would consider uh, ecumenical, they say, I believe in one God the Father. 
And Photius says, hey, you're getting into this weird sort of quasi-modalist thing or whatever it is. Uh, and sure enough, they issue this creed and it says we believe in one God in three persons consubstantial. We confess God to be one, unique in respect of substance, but threefold or three if we are speaking of him in respect of persons. So they do have this kind of modalist, um, I mean, I think it's just modalist, but of course they'll deny it's modalist, but anyway, I'll just call it quasi-modalist view. It's like they're talking about the one God, and if you talk about the one God, whatever this means, in respective substance, then he's one, but he is threefold if you speak of him in respective persons. Now, Orthodox Christians would say, if you're talking about the one God, he's got one essence, and he's one person. I mean, if you're talking about the Father, right, the Son and the Holy Spirit have the same nature, and they can be called theos without the definite article— which means divine, they're divine persons. But there's no, like, one entity that you can say, well, you know, in one respect it's one, but in another respect it's three. Because it's just the, the one God, the Father, is one person and has one nature, and the triad, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are three. Three hypostases. They, I mean, you know, whatever, you can say they have one nature, but... You can say that about three people, too. I mean, there, there's no real kind of mystery and weirdness about it on the Orthodox view, but this is where it starts to get weird. And so I think you have to admit he was right about the direction that, that Western theology was going. Photius has this other council later where they, they say, look, this council was bogus. What happened at this council in 869 was basically it started out with only something like 18 or 20 bishops or something, very few. Um, I don't think it ever got over 100, 120 or something. But the bishops that showed up to it were required to sign a document saying that they agreed that they would vote to depose Photius. Otherwise, they weren't allowed into the council. So can you really consider this like a genuine church council I mean, a council is supposed to be something where the bishops come from all over, and you deliberate about things, you talk about things, and it's, you know, that it, it's this was this kind of orchestrated, you know, predetermined thing where if if you weren't going to vote to depose Photius, you just wouldn't be allowed in. So anyway, it's kind of a trumped up thing, and actually, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, agreed to that after Photius was reinstated later, and they used to deny that this council was legitimate, and they accepted our fourth council of Constantinople, or eighth ecumenical council, um, the orthodox one. And it wasn't until a few hundred years later, under political pressure from the Franks, Franks started telling them, hey, we want you to accept, we want you to go back and say that this council that deposed Photius and all this stuff was right, and we want you to kind of disavow this, this later council. So the Catholic Church kind of did an about-face. While Photius is in exile then, and he's been condemned by this kind of bogus council of Constantinople, he writes this book, The Mystagogy of the Holy Spirit, which is all about the filioque and, and against it. And we're going to read some selections from it in a second. In the meantime, the emperor kind of decided, hey, Photius has been dealt with pretty harshly here. You know, he didn't really do anything wrong. And, you know, he's been deposed. We have another patriarch in. We, they went back to this previous patriarch who'd been deposed and whatever. But anyway, the emperor finally kind of realized, look, this guy's not a bad guy. Brought him back out of exile. Actually let him be his children's tutor because Photius was basically the smartest or the most well-educated man probably in the world at the time. And so he becomes the tutor. And while he's there, he makes friends makes peace with the patriarch of Constantinople at the time, who there had been this kind of, well, some bad blood between kind of... Anyway, and eventually the patriarch of Constantinople, you know, makes peace with Photius II and kind of designates him as his successor. He sort of says, this is the guy I want to succeed me, actually. So not only were they not enemies anymore, but they, you know, Photius made friends with him, made peace with him. You can read, it's very interesting. I mean, when he was in prison... Some of his supporters wrote to him and, you know, oh, we need to try to get you out of here, break you out of prison, or, you know, this is unjust and how awful this is. And he wrote back and he just said, uh, hey, you know, don't feel sorry for me. Prison is great. You know, I have plenty of time to pray. 
don't try to break me out of here. This uh, I like it here. You know, I've got time to pray. I've got time to read and write. And, you know, had no complaints about it. So he, he bore his adversity uh, very nobly, whatever uh, people might want to say about him. But anyway... When the other patriarch dies, then, in fact, Photius was elected patriarch of Constantinople again for a second time, 877 to 886. And, uh, of course, people had some uh, worries about this because he had been deposed and, you know, was this legal or whatever. So Photius convened this council, what the Orthodox Church considers the Fourth Council of Constantinople or the Eighth Ecumenical Council in 879. And in that council, not only do they affirm that Photius's patriarchate is legitimate and that his, you know, deposition before was bogus because it was, again, this kind of predetermined kind of BS. But they also condemn that previous council's creed and reaffirm the Nicene creed that says, I believe in one God, the Father. So this council, the Orthodox Council of Constantinople, says, no, there's not one God in three persons consubstantial, there's one God the Father. There's not, you know, one God who's one in respect of substance, but he's three if speaking of him in respect of persons. There's one God the Father. So they reaffirm that and they condemn this um, this other uh, creed. Now, uh, because of, a, a, you know, Byzantine politics and whatnot, Photius is banished <laughs> and exiled again uh, in 886, so, you know, uh, got, got a, almost a decade in there. Uh, and then he dies in, in 893, and again, he's considered one of the great saints of the church, one of the pillars of orthodoxy in the Orthodox Church. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson shares with us some of the words of this bishop, Photius. So let's read a little bit about what he said about the filioque. So this is a little passage, again, I, you know, I can't go through everything, but this is a passage that, that would, is representative from the encyclical to the Eastern Patriarch. So this is when he first kind of says, hey, guys, you know, something fishy is going on in Rome. Notice what it says about the way Photius conceives of monotheism, okay? So again... We're talking about the strong monarchy view and that Orthodox Christianity says the one God is the Father because the Father is the one, or he, or source. He says, what Christian can endure to bring two causes? So he's thinking about the filioque. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So he's got these two principles. What Christian can endure to bring two causes into the Holy Triad? The Father being a cause of the Son and the Spirit, and again the Son being a cause of the Spirit. And to dissolve the monarchy into ditheism. Now here an interesting thing is, again, the Church Fathers don't ever really use the word monotheism for whatever reason, I don't know, but that just wasn't the word that was used. They use monarchy when they talk about monotheism. But here he does use this word for monotheism. I, I've bolded it, so you've got two causes, duo itii, atia, to dissolve the monarchy into ditheism, ditheon, right? So, is ditheon timonarchion lien, to dissolve the monarchy into ditheism. That, that word ditheon is ditheism. So, when he said, what he says in his mind, right, two causes means you've got two gods, you've got ditheism. And he says that you, you rip the theology of Christians into nothing but the most evil mythology of the Hellenes, the Greeks, the pagans. And to treat with insolence the dignity of the superessential and monarchic triad. So again, that word monarchic, that's the way they would say monotheistic, right? The monotheistic triad is the monarchic triad. It's monotheistic because it's monarchic, right? Because there's just one archie, one Etia, right? One source. 
So that's Patriarch Photius's view. What does that say about his conception of monotheism? Again, according to Photius, the status of the father as the sole principle or monoarchy is what makes the difference between monotheism and polytheism. Right? So that's why, in his view, if you've got two causes, father and the son, then that's two gods. It's ditheism. So that's why introducing the second archie yields ditheism. And it's important to note here that Photius, so think about this, Photius never accuses the filioque of directly causing any problem with the homoousion. Now, there's ways in which he kind of tries to argue that it can, depending on how you flesh out the view. But he doesn't say that it's just directly a problem with the homoousion, right? You could have father and son being homoousius, the same, which in, in Greek, by the way, just means the same type of thing, the same kind of thing. This is another thing where Tuggy, I think, is not quite aware of, of some of the dynamics of, of this debate. The reality of the situation, I would say, and, and certainly Orthodox Christians would agree, is there is no ambiguity in Greek with the term homoousius, Tuggy has like an entire chapter in, in this book <laughs> about, you know, where he just kind of agonizes over, oh, how do we interpret it, whatever. But homoousia is a perfectly good Greek word. It's used by other heretical uh, Christian sects. It's used by Gnostics. It's used by other religions. It's used by pagan philosophers. It's used in secular you know, legal and medical <laughs> literature. I mean, it's used in all these other contexts in, in Greek and and in every other case in the world, it always means just what it looks like, homoousias. Just it's the same, means just like homogenous, right? It means the same kind of thing, the same type of thing. But it's important for egalitarian Trinitarians to maintain that this is somehow ambiguous. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't have time to get into all of that uh, in this particular presentation because it's already going to be very lengthy but if anybody's interested I can I can elaborate on that at, at, at much length later um, there's even a fa maybe famous or infamous passage in uh, JND Kelly's book on early Christian doctrines I mean it's just nuts um, but he basically kind of in so many words admits that there's really no ambiguity with this term but then he just sort of says, well, but we have to interpret it as meaning the opposite of what it says anyway, because theology sort of requires that, which means his egalitarian theology requires it to be ambiguous. But anyway, it's not ambiguous. So homoousian just means uh, same type of thing. And so, of course, you could have the father and the son being the same species and both causes. I mean, that happens all the time. Human beings are of the same species. Human beings are homoousius, according to all the Greek fathers. And you can have two fathers. That you know, doesn't mean they're different species of things. So there's not any direct problem there. But yet Photius doesn't accept filioquist theology as monotheistic, even if it's consistent with the three persons having one essence. So what, what that tells you, long story short, is that Photius... He wouldn't deny the homoousion, right? He thinks it's important that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have the same divine nature, but he does not think that that's what makes you a monotheist. It's very clear, because if the homoousion is what makes theology just by itself makes it monotheistic, then Filioquist would be monotheistic. There wouldn't be any necessarily any problem with being monotheistic if that's what makes you monotheistic. But what Photius thinks is that what makes you a monotheist is that there is only one source in the Trinity, and that source is the Father. Okay, so later he writes the mystagogy of the Holy Spirit. He does spend the first about ten sections talking about kind of the metaphysics of it, and that the, their Latins don't understand the Cappadocians' metaphysics of the Trinity, and so forth. So he does get into that, but pretty quickly he gets onto the topic of the monarchy again. So he says, leaving aside the aforementioned, in other words, all the metaphysical issues, if one admits of two causes, duo etia, in the thearchic and superessential triad, which, by the way, I kind of retranslated this, but uh, again, it's very, it's just puzzling. I wish that Tuggy would kind of clarify some of this for us. Because he makes this big deal about sort of the Trinity with the capital T, as he calls it, and Trinity with a lowercase t. 
where Trinity with a capital T is this, you know, it's like what you saw in the the Roman Catholic Council in 869. There's this one entity that is both kind of three and one somehow. And Trinity with a lowercase t, he means is just kind of a, a group of three, right? So uh, a triad. Well, the weird thing is that in Greek, there actually is no word for Trinity. There's just the word triad. So it's very strange because, again, this is another thing where he kind of says, oh, everything's real ambiguous, but it's hard to see how it could be ambiguous because there's not any ambiguity in Greek. There's not any word for Trinity in Greek. There's just a word triad. So all occurrences of that term in Greek mean what Tuggy would call Trinity with a lowercase t. And, of course, it, we'll get into this later. He'll say, well, then that's not the, not a Trinity doctrine. But, well, then that just means you can't have a doctrine of the Trinity in Greek. So it's just very kind of nutty. I shouldn't say nutty, but a very weird view, just very confusing. I wish he would clarify, you know, what like what does he think is going on in Greek. I'm not sure if he knows Greek, though, so may, that may be the issue. But anyway, Photius says, if one admits of two causes in the Thearchic and superessential triad— where then is the much-hymned and God-befitting majesty of the monarchy? If you've got two causes, how do you have a monarchia? You don't. You have diarchy. This is how he conceives of monotheism. This is what monotheism is for Photius. Will not the godlessness of polytheism be riotously introduced? Under the guise of Christianity, will not the superstition of Hellenic error reassert itself among those who dare to say such things, right? He says, you're going to end up with this view that you're calling it Christianity, but it's really paganism, which is funny because that's exactly what biblical Unitarians today will say. But for some reason, when Photius says the same thing, they think that doesn't count or whatever. Or they just don't know about it. I don't know. The next paragraph, he says, again, if two causes are imposed upon the monarchic triad, Right? So there's that phrase again. It's, it's the monotheistic triad is the mono, monarchic triad. Right? If two causes are imposed on the monarchic triad, then according to the same reasoning, why should not a third one emerge? Right? So he says, look, if, you're, if you can have two causes, but it's still the monarchic triad, why not have three causes? I mean, why not? I mean, who cares, right? Why shouldn't you have a third one? For once the principle without principle and above principle is cast down from its throne. Now, what does that mean, by the way? The the principle, the archi that is on archi and hooper archi, that's the father. That language is what is used in patristic sources to refer to the father. The father is the source without source. So when this says, once the principle without principle and above principle is cast down from its throne, that means once the father, who is the, the one principle, is cast down from his throne by these impious ones and is cleaved into a duality, the principle will proceed more vehemently to be severed into a triad. Since in the supersubstantial, inseparable, and simple nature of the divinity, the triad is more manifest than the dyad and indeed also harmonizes with the idiomata. What that means is, look, if you're talking about the Trinity, you know, it's obvious that there's a one, which of course... Photius is the father, not the divine nature, but there's one. And then there's three, and there's three properties. There's the father's property, you know, of being a father, and the son's property being a son, and the spirit's property of proceeding. So it, it seems more reasonable to either associate causality with the one or with the three. Why would you stop at two? And this has always been a problem. It's kind of, you know, if you say, well, sometimes people say, well, you know, the son needs to be a cause of a divine being too because, then, you know, if he's consubstantial with the father, then, you know, he needs to produce another divine being. But, of course, then you'd have to say the Holy Spirit needs to produce another divine being too. Once you start saying that causality is part of the divine nature, well, then all the divine persons have to produce other divine persons, and you get this kind of infinite regress. That's Photius's argument later on in the, in the mystagogy. But anyway, the bottom line here is that he views this as a situation where if you've got two causes, then you've got two gods. And that shows you that Photius does not think of the one god in terms of the one shared divine nature. 
he thinks of it in terms of causality, and only the Father is a cause of other divine beings. And that's why he's the one God. Of course, a lot of people are going to have this question, isn't this subordinationism? So I just want to give kind of some views of, of two, probably the two leading patristic scholars in this uh, kind of neck of the woods, at least for my money, they're the, the best ones uh, around, in my opinion. Michel René Barnes says, subordinationism has become a scare word, like Nestorian or Neoplatonist or Papist, and considerable nuance has to be used making it, for those of us in the business, a word we have been trying to avoid and replace. In any case, Orthodox Trinitarian theology pre- and post-Nicene has always had some kind of subordinationism, whatever that word means, to it. Read Augustine De Trinitate 1 through 4, or at least 1 and 4, and is the discussion of missio, sending. So God the Father sends the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit. He also sent Christ into the world, but they don't send the Father. So Michelle Renee Barnes is just saying, look, and I agree with this, you can call it subordinationism all you want, but all of the church fathers were in some sense subordinationists. So if you think that that makes something not orthodox or not really Trinitarian, then it wouldn't be until much later I would say not even really in the medieval period that you get really anti-subordinationist sort of views. Um, I think it's not even really until maybe the modern period that you get, you know, this real kind of obsessive worry about subordination in the Trinity. Lewis Ayers says a similar thing. He says, there are not only two alternatives. The Trinitarian persons are totally equal or eternal subordination. It's much more interesting than that. He's, he's just, this is the context of a larger passage where he's saying, look, there's a lot of different kinds of subordination and, and senses and a, a lot of different options. Again, I think he would agree with Michelle Barnes that there's always some sort of subordination. It depends on, on the church father. So again, if, you, if you're really allergic to subordinationism, then you really are allergic to the church fathers. And you're going to be allergic to even really the Roman Catholic view even of, of the Trinity insofar as it's uh, supposed to be grounded in the Church Fathers. So you'll be allergic to the Orthodox view, but, but really you're just allergic to the Trinitarian tradition if you, if you don't like subordinationism of any kind or sort. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Branson relates some subordinationist passages from Gregory of Nyssa. Let's get into then the patristic sources. So we've seen kind of how this creates an issue for Tuggy. We're kind of talking about is this really a real thing? Is this legitimate? Um, I've argued that it's a pretty standard mainstream view in Eastern Orthodoxy. That really shouldn't be surprising because it kind of traces back to the Great Schism. So let's see, you know, what was at issue at the Great Schism? Why would Greek-speaking Christians predominantly think this is the view that you find in the Greek fathers, whereas largely illiterate and people, you know, Latin fathers who didn't, typically didn't know Greek, uh, at least it wasn't very widely known then, uh, didn't have access to a lot of manuscripts and so forth. Why would they have thought that the church fathers had this egalitarian view of the Trinity, while the actual Greek-speaking fathers who had access to the actual text thought otherwise? So we're just going to go through a handful of texts to kind of let you in on that. So Here's a selection from Gregory of Nyssa's epistle Ad Petrum to his brother Peter. This has traditionally been known as St. Basil's 38th epistle. But most scholars today think it's found in collections both of Basil and Gregory, but most scholars today think it probably was written by Gregory of Nyssa. It doesn't really matter who wrote it, but anyway, it's the classic central text 
for understanding the term hypostasis. So if you're ever confused about, you know, what does this word hypostasis and usia, you know, what do these mean? Well, Epistle 38 is kind of the classic text where it gets defined. And the interesting thing here, though, is I'm not going to get into the definitions. Those, again, that's another issue with the, the whole um, ambiguity thesis. The, the definitions that Gregory draws on there are just taken out of standard Greek textbooks on grammar and logic. So, And no one who studies those textbooks thinks there's any ambiguity in what they mean. Because, of course, the people who are studying ancient Greek grammarians uh, don't have any theological axe to grind. So among those scholars, no one thinks these are uh, ambiguous. It's only theologians that will tell you, oh, these are, you know, texts are so ambiguous. But the interesting thing is not his definitions of usia and hypostasis. The interesting thing here is his brief discussion of the three hypostases of the Trinity. In other words, the three persons of the Trinity and the properties that individuate them. This is something that might be unexpected. So if you are an egalitarian Trinitarian, I don't think you're going to expect what what happens here. If you, like Orthodox Christians, are a monarchical Trinitarian, you're just going to say, oh, yeah, interesting. But if you're an egalitarian, I think you are or you should be surprised. He goes in reverse order, and he starts with the Holy Spirit here, right? The Holy Spirit has this note of his peculiarity, in other words, this individuating quality. And then you've got the Son, right? And he's going to talk about the Son has this other individuating quality. But then look who the first person of the Trinity is. It's not the Father. It's God. So you've got the three persons of the Trinity for Gregory of Nyssa are the Holy Spirit, the Son, and God. Again, if you're an egalitarian and you think that the one God is the Trinity... I don't think that this is what you would expect to see, right? If you're a monarchical Trinitarian, you think the one God is the Father, you think, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, the Son, and then God, i.e. the Father, you know, same thing. No big deal if you're a monarchical Trinitarian. But if you're an egalitarian, I don't think this is what you'd expect. And not only if you are an egalitarian Trinitarian, but if you like Dale Tuggy and like the Roman Catholic tradition— if you want to interpret the church fathers as though they were egalitarian Trinitarians, which Tuggy agrees with the Catholics on that point. I'm going to come back to this point later. It's a big irony that he sees through this when he's talking about the Bible, because he's familiar with the Bible. I think he's not as familiar with the church fathers, but he sees through that when egalitarians try to read their doctrine of the Trinity back into the Bible. But when they read it back into the Church Fathers, he doesn't see through the BS. He thinks, oh yeah, the Church Fathers are egalitarian. Well, sorry buddy, take a closer look at the Trinity in Gregory of Nyssa. It's the Holy Spirit, the Son, and God. Now, you might think, okay, well, but yeah, but he doesn't really mean that, right? I mean, Gregory doesn't mean that the first person of the Trinity is God. He just has to be an egalitarian. He has to be supporting a much later Western, specifically Roman Catholic view about the Trinity. I mean, just has to be, because that's what Western Christians believe, and Western Christians can't be wrong about anything, right? The people who actually speak the language, they're the ones that must be wrong. The people who actually had access to these manuscripts, they must be the ones that are wrong. Western Christians can't be wrong about anything. So clearly Gregory can't mean this, right? He doesn't really mean it. Maybe this phrase, if you see it in the Greek, oepipanthon theos, the God above all, you know, maybe that's just kind of a colorful phrase for the Father. Maybe it's just Gregory sort of saying, oh, you know, he just likes to call the Father the God above all, you know. It's this kind of poetic way of talking about God the Father being, you know, the God above all or something. And in a way, that's true, because it turns out that is one of Gregory's favorite things to call the Father. It's, it's if you just do a word search through Gregory's works for this phrase, Epipanton Theos, that's one of the most common things he calls God, the Father. And so in a sense, that's true, but it's not like he doesn't mean it, because look at the properties that he says individuate the persons. 
the property that individuates God, that he has this singular mark of his own hypostasis, this individuating quality. In other words, this is the quality that, according to Gregory, distinguishes God from the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? Makes them not identical on his view, uh, not numerically identical anyway. And the property is the property of being the Father. So he says you've got the Holy Spirit, the Son, and then you've got God. And what sets God apart from the Holy Spirit is the property of being the Father. So in other words, his view is fatherhood is essential to God. It is part of who and what God is. It's part of his identity. So the Son and the Spirit can't be God. They are individuated from the one God precisely by the fact that the one God has the quality of being the Father. That's what makes God who he is. And here's the problem for the interpretation that doesn't really take it seriously. If what Gregory meant by God above all here, the God overall, was just Father, if that was just a colorful phrase for the Father, then he would be giving a circular criterion of individuation. Right? He would be saying what individuates the Father is the property of being the Father. Well, okay, that's not very helpful. Now, you might think, well, okay, but sometimes people do unhelpful stuff in their metaphysics, right? Sometimes people do try to say that things can be individuated in a circular way or something. You know, maybe he just is, is doing that and, and whatever. Well, okay, let's go with that. Maybe he could just say, okay, the, the father is just individuated by having the property of being the father. Not very helpful, but maybe that's his view. But notice that he doesn't give circular criteria of individuation in any other case. What individuates the Holy Spirit is not the property of being the Holy Spirit. It's not even the property of being holy or the property of spiritude. It's this being known after the Son and together with the Son and having his subsistence from the Father. Right? So it's not a circular criteria of individuation for the Holy Spirit. And for the Son, it's not a circular criterion of individuation either. The Son's property is through himself and with himself, he reveals the Spirit proceeding from the Father, and he, the Son, alone shines forth only begottenly from the unbegotten light. So it's not just the Son's property as being the Son. So if you want to say, well, Gregory wasn't really being serious here, and when he says God, he doesn't mean God, he just means the Father— well, then you have to say, well, why would he individuate the Father in this circular way when he doesn't do that for the Holy Spirit, he doesn't do that for the Son? And in other parts of the letter, by the way, you know, he talks about Job. He doesn't say Job has the property of being Job. Uh, he talks about Peter and Paul, and he doesn't say, well, Peter has the property of Peterness, and Paul has the property of Paulness. He says, you know, Paul has the property of being the apostle to the Gentiles and this sort of thing, and Peter has the property of being the first called and the, the rock and this and that. In every other case, Gregory never gives circular criteria of individuation for anything in this epistle or anywhere else. So it just doesn't make sense as a reading of Gregory of Nyssa. You have to read him as meaning what he says. The first person of the Trinity is God. The property, the quality that individuates God as an individual is the quality of being the Father. So notice, this is, in a certain sense, an even stronger view of the monarchy than what we've been talking about, because we've just been saying, well, the one God is the Father. But what Gregory's actually saying is not just that the one God is the Father, but he's saying fatherhood, the property of being a father, is essential to God. It's not accidental. It's not just God happens to be a father. That is essential to God. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to show you a passage in a, in a second where he actually uses that as a premise. First, I'm going to just mention this. John Baer agrees with me here. He says, Gregory does not identify God as that which is common, a genus to which various particular beings belong. Rather, Gregory stands clearly within the monarchical approach of Athanasius, Basil, and Gregory of Nazianzus. It is the God above all, the God over all, who is known specifically as Father. Now, maybe you're still not convinced, okay? I don't know, you know, maybe John Bear's wrong, maybe you're wrong, maybe 
Maybe something must have gone on. Well, I'm going to give you a passage from his work against Eunomius, who was an extreme Arian, where Gregory actually uses the proposition that God is identical to the Father as a premise against Eunomius. So clearly he means it to be taken seriously. You're going to see the argument wouldn't make any sense if we tried to interpret him as not really meaning what he said. And by the way, again, if you want to interpret Gregory as you know really being an egalitarian Trinitarian and not a strong monarchist, I think that you're going to have a very hard time explaining this passage too and a lot of other related passages. Okay, this is from Gregory, this is Contra Eunomius. This is Book 2, Chapter 5. What he does is he just goes through Eunomius's apology for the apology line by line. And at this point, he's going through Eunomius's creed. So he says, let us examine the words that follow in this creed by Eunomius. And Eunomius's creed says, he is always and absolutely one, remaining uniformly and unchangeably the only God. What do you expect is going to come next if Gregory is an egalitarian? I think that what you would expect if you were talking to an egalitarian Trinitarian is, well, when Eunomius comes along and says, he is always and absolutely one, remaining uniformly and unchangeably the only God, I think an egalitarian Trinitarian would respond by saying, that's true, there's just the one God, but the one God is the Trinity. And if you're talking about the Father, then, yeah, the Father is the only God, but the Son is also the only true God, and so is the Holy Spirit. And even though there's three of them, but there's only one true God, and so they're both, they're all kind of God, but they're kind of not, but they are, but they're not. And it's really, it's sort of complicated because there's three of them, but there's only one, even though that's three and and one is not the same thing, but it's kind of the same thing, but it's not really, but it's really complicated and it's hard to understand, but but you just have to understand it's a mystery. That sort of verbal diarrhea, something in that general neck of the woods, is what you would expect to hear from an egalitarian Trinitarian, right? They're going to start kind of dancing around and talking around the issue and say a bunch of really confusing stuff and then sort of throw up their hands at the end and say it's a mystery, right? But what does Gregory say? He says, next line in Eunomius' Creed, he is always and absolutely one, remaining uniformly and unchangeably the only God. And Gregory says, if he is speaking about the Father, we agree with him. I don't see how you can make sense out of that if you're an egalitarian or if you think that Gregory was an egalitarian. If Gregory was the kind of Trinitarian that you come across in the Western world today that says, well, they're kind of three, they're kind of one, they kind of are, but they aren't. I mean, I don't really know. It's really complicated. It's a mystery. I don't understand. You just have to have it on faith. The last thing that you would expect Gregory to say would be, well, if he's talking about the Father, then we agree with him. For the Father is most truly one, alone, and always absolutely uniform and unchangeable, never at any time, present or future, ceasing to be what he is. And what is he, on Gregory's view? He's the Father. That's who he is. And that's going to be Gregory's argument. If he's speaking about the Father, we agree with him, because the Father is unchangeable, never at any time, present or future, ceasing to be what he is, the Father. He's never not the Father. But biblical Unitarians and Arians believe that God was not always the Father. And we're going to come back to that. And he says, if then such an assertion as this has regard to the Father, in other words, who is he? You know, he says he is always absolutely one, remaining uniformly and unchanging. Well, who is he? Who are we talking about, Gregory says. He says, if such an assertion has regard to the Father, let him not contend with the doctrine of godliness, inasmuch as on this point he is in harmony with the church. If you want to read Gregory of Nyssa as an egalitarian, this is a pretty rough thing to figure out because I don't think this is what you expect to hear from an egalitarian Trinitarian who says, well, the one God is all the persons and each of the persons, and ah, it's real complicated and it's hard to understand. 
Okay, and by the way, this is not just idle talk from Gregory. So this is not just Gregory saying, hey, well, if you'll say it's the Father, then I'll stop posting nasty stuff on your Facebook page. Gregory, by Roman law, was given the authority to decide who was and was not part of the church. I mean, that's how influential he was and how respected his view. He legally, and this eventually happened, there actually was someone in Palestine who, you know, their orthodoxy was called into question. It was a bishop. I think it was a bishop or a priest. And so people, you know, said, well, I don't know. It's really complicated. Who, how do you figure it out? Well, they called Gregory Nyssa to come down and say, you tell us. Interview this guy, ask him about his theology, and you get to decide whether he's counts as, as a Catholic bishop or not. Gregory really had the power to say whether you were a Catholic bishop or not. And he, what he says here is just, hey, if you'll just, if you'll just cut the BS and instead of saying he is one and he's the only God, just call him the Father and you're good. That's, that's it. That's all I want. I don't think you can make sense out of that if you're an egalitarian. And here's what he says. How can he say this? He says, For he who confesses that the Father is always and unchangeably the same, being the one and only God, holds fast the word of godliness. Now, if you want to read into Gregory of Nyssa, your current, present, modern-day experience of talking to, you know, Catholics or evangelical Protestants about the Trinity, and they have this kind of crazy, well, God is one and three, and I don't know, it's real complicated. How do you read that into this text? He says, look, the Father is the one and only God. And if you confess that, you, then you hold fast the word of godliness. That's not egalitarian Trinitarianism, my friend. <laughs> so how can he say this? Why is it that if you say that the Father is always and unchangeably the one and only God, well, if in the Father he sees the Son, without whom the Father neither is nor is named, right? In other words, God can't be a Father if he doesn't have a Son. That's why Gregory uses this as a premise. Gregory's okay with saying that the one God is the Father. That, that, that's his premise, right? So this strong monarchy view that Tuggy identifies with Unitarianism, but that in reality is just the monarchy of the Father, that's his premise in the argument. But that means that God has to have a son, because God can't be a father if he doesn't have a son. Now here's another thing that I don't think you're, you would expect from an egalitarian. What's the difference between Jews and Christians? So Gregory goes on, he says, but if he, so if you say that the Father is the one and only God, that's the Father, the really strong monarchy view, then that's fine. You hold fast the word of godliness. But he says, if he's inventing some other God besides the Father, then let him go argue alongside the Jews, right? In other words, if you say that God is someone other than the Father, then why don't you go join the Jews? Now, a lot of, I think egalitarians, I think the modern day sort of, view among egalitarians and lots of people is, oh, well, the difference between Jews and Christians, well, Jews worship God the Father, but Christians, you know, we also worship God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, right? We worship everybody. We worship all kinds. Of or, you know, we worship the Trinity. You know, our God, their God is God the Father, but we worship God the Trinity. And that's the difference, is our God is a Trinity, right? That's, that's the difference. But notice here what Gregory says is, that if Eunomius has some God besides the Father, then, hey, why don't you go join the Jews? Between whom, right, between the Jews and the Christians, there is this difference. Is it going to be that they worship God the Father, but we worship the Trinity or the Son and the Spirit too? No, he says, if he's inventing some other God besides the Father, let him argue alongside the Jews, between whom and the Christians there is this difference that they, the Jews, acknowledge that there is a God whom they term the Most High or the Almighty, but they do not admit that he is a Father. While a Christian, if he believe not in the Father, is no Christian at all. 
that's the difference in Gregory's view. It's not, oh, Jews worship the Father, and we worship the Trinity. It's that Jews worship God, but for them, God is just the Most High, or the Almighty. And for us, the one God is the Father. This week's thinking music is the track Great Doxology from Chants of the Russian Orthodox Church, Volume 2. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download the entire track. Next week, more from Dr. Branson as he returns to the topic of clashing definitions and argues that fatherhood is essential to God. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities Podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. For listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>